listen along. This is the text I'll be preaching from this morning, Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and I want us to prepare our hearts for what God has in store. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. After this, John said, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him great and small. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with, the, with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Again, I read that now that's our preaching text for the day. And our worship is very much tied to this this morning because there's a word that's used multiple times here in this text that we're very familiar with, the word hallelujah. It's it's a, a word that that we're familiar, we're familiar with it from our study in, in the book of Psalms, as we each Lord's Day come together in prayer. Hallelujah is a term we constantly see. When we were kids, you may recall singing a song. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And then the other side of the room stands up and says, praise, praise you the Lord. And then you go to the other side of the room, they stand up, that room sits down, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. And I, I didn't know this when I was a kid singing that song. You may, hallelujah at means praise the Lord. Hallelujah is praise, and Yah is the short for Yahweh, the Lord. Praise the Lord. So we grew up with that song. We see it in the book of Psalms. We're very familiar with it. This surprised me. It might not surprise you. We only see it once in all of the New Testament. Only once, right here in Revelation 19. And we see it four times in this one text. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we see this. And that draws attention, I think, to to the worship of the angels and the living creatures as they're, they're worshiping God. Hallelujah. For these around the throne praising the Lord. It's not a catchphrase. It's not a kid's song. It's an absolute heartfelt expression out of a heart for which God is the best portion, for which God is the prize, for which God is the treasure. 
these angels are not singing hallelujah mindlessly. They're not with their lips mouthing the words and saying it, yet their heart not really praising the Lord. The word means praise the Lord, and that's why it's been strategically, sovereignly inspired by God to be used here. They are overflowingly in their heart praising the Lord. And you know, as I was thinking about this this week, that's what we're here to do this morning. That's why we've assembled together to praise the Lord. This really is the pinnacle of all of our weekly privileges and responsibilities. Did you know that? I mean, yes, we, we have work we have to do, we have family responsibilities, but the pinnacle of it all in the economy of God's providence is the a corporate gathering of God's people to, with one heart, praise the Lord. And as I was wrestling with these things this week, I was reminded there is a constant danger every single Lord's Day when we gather for this pinnacle of all responsibilities. A danger that we must constantly be aware of and address each Lord's Day. And it's what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. He said to the Pharisees, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. This morning, many of the songs that we've selected are drawing from this hallelujah theme. And the great tragedy this morning would be for us to worship in vain. To be singing, praise the Lord, but with hearts that are dry and dull and empty and that have drifted from the Lord. So this morning, I want us to begin, even before we begin our time of worship. And again, I'm doing things a little bit different this morning because this is the sermon for the day. This text, and we'll be coming back to it. But we need to think about these things before we sing and pray and worship rather than after the fact. So I would ask you, as I have tried to do this week and even this morning, bow your head and just take a moment. If there would be any dryness, any complacency, any dullness, any drift away from the Lord that would cause you, you're going to be singing with us, hallelujah, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But if you know it's coming from a heart that's not right, take a moment right now, confess that to the Lord that we might not rob him of the worship he's worthy of. Do that now. And as you confess that, ask the Holy Spirit, even now, to stir our hearts with gratitude, with affection for Christ for who he is and what he's done so that we can't wait to praise him. And as you continue praying that with your head bowed, pray that same prayer for one of your neighbors around you right now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great honor and privilege that we have this morning to join with the angels and the living creatures around your throne to worship you. Father, you alone are worthy of our adoration and our praise. And 
Father, we thank you for giving us a glimpse here in Revelation 19 of the heavenly worship service, the, the original hallelujah chorus. So that we would know as we gather together this morning, Father, what you seek from us. And Lord, we know we, as we gather together in this place, we ought to be filled with awestruck wonder at the God that you are and that we, by your grace, belong to you. But Father, we do confess that far too often and maybe even as we sit here this morning, instead of being amazed by you and your grace, we can become accustomed to these things. And we can oftentimes become bored and disinterested and distant in worship. Lord, it, it could even reach a point to where we think we've done you a favor just because we showed up this morning. And we're here with minds distracted and hearts divided. Meanwhile, we give all of our best time and energy to our, the other idols of our hearts. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who became our perfect sacrifice. His death on the cross paid the debt for our apathy, for our complacency, for the emptiness of our worship. And Father, we're grateful. We thank you for Jesus' perfect life, his perfect obedience, his flawless worship, and that he did it also on our behalf. And that in him this morning, even as we worship, we worship in Christ, and our worship is counted as perfect in Jesus Christ. But Father, we don't want to go through the motions this morning. And so we pray that your spirit would stir our cold hearts with gratitude. Open our eyes to see all that is ours in Christ. May the knowledge of what we deserve and the reality of what we have in Christ melt our hearts and fill us with joy and delight and fill our hearts and our lips with praise. Lord, as we sing hallelujah to you for all that you are and all that Christ is for us, Lord, fill our souls that the praise genuine and authentic, and a reflection of our heart's affection for you. Through this work of grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We read the text this morning. I'll just read just a couple of verses. Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For he's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her on her, the blood of the saints. Verse 3, once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Let's skip down to verse 6. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Again, the hallelujah chorus we see here is unique to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we see this term used. And what I find amazing about these hallelujahs is that they praise the Lord for two very 
opposite things. For a funeral and for a wedding. And that's how we want to consider these hallelujahs this morning. Praise the Lord for a funeral and for a wedding. In order for us to, I think, benefit from Revelation chapter 19, we, we need to have it in its context. So I want us to take just a few moments to step back, to get our footing in the book of Revelation so that we can see how all this fits together and how these hallelujahs for the church of Jesus Christ do bring grace and peace. Think back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, to the letters to the seven churches. Those letters revealed the realities of corruption in the life of the church. Those seven letters to those seven churches, again, seven symbolic of fullness, those churches are representative of every church in every age, so those are addressed to us at Covenant Life Church as well. Those seven churches revealed the realities of persecution going on outside the church, and in the first century, that was the Roman Empire, but it also revealed the corruption within the church. And if we could just kind of broadly describe it, Jesus exposes idolatry in his church. He exposes that the Roman Empire has had a political influence upon the church. The Roman Empire was, was uh, polytheistic. I mean, they didn't really care what God you worshipped as long as you just paid them. Pay, pay Rome, be a good. So we'll give you freedom to worship whatever gods you want. You want to throw Christ in there? Yeah, sure. But the culture was polytheistic, and so idolatry had crept in. Jesus plus other idols. And Jesus in those letters exposes idolatry, exposes false teaching that had crept into those seven churches. It's kind of a counterfeit Christianity that had crept into the church that had mixed and mingled the gospel of Jesus Christ with works. Right? Remember the Nicolaitans? Jesus says, I hate them. Because the, the corruption of the gospel, the counterfeit Christianity that they're teaching created. And Jesus exposes in those seven letters to those seven churches a general drift away from Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, Lord, and treasure that he is. Idolatry, false teaching, just a drift away from Jesus. Subtle. Those in the seven churches didn't recognize it. When they received those letters, they would have been shocked and awed. What do you mean you have a problem with us? Look, we're here, we're doing all these things. And Jesus, I walk in the midst of my churches. I'm looking into the heart. I see what's going on. And so Jesus exposes the realities of persecution going outside the church, but also the drift away from Christ that was going on inside of the church. And these realities that Jesus identifies in the world, they can't go unnoticed. They can't go undealt with. So he who walks among the seven churches executes God's judgments on a world that continues to live in rebellion to Jesus Christ and a church that lives in rebellion to Jesus Christ. And so God pronounces these judgments upon the world. And in chapters 6 through 8, that first cycle of judgments characterized as seven seals are the pouring out of God's judgment upon this world. Judgments, they were going on in the first century. They're still going on today. They're not chronological. We're not one and then the other and then the other. They're all happening at the same time. 
in varying degrees. They're affecting varying aspects of the world. You can go back and look at them. They've been going on the whole time. Why seven, the number of perfection? Why not just one vision? Again, it's kind of like a football game. You're looking at different camera angles, same game, same thing, but each camera's focusing upon a different aspect of judgment, a different, a different thing that God is doing to a world that lives in rebellion to him. And these seven seals culminate in final judgment, the seventh seal, and they continue on in the time between Christ's ascension and his return. Then in chapters 8 through 10, God announces the seven trumpets, which are not a second series of judgments, meaning the first seven seals are done. Now we go to the second series, which is seven trumpets. No, these are the exact same things. We went back and you can, you can line them up. They're the exact same judgments with greater intensity. And they're going on all the time in the time until Jesus returns. And the purpose of the trumpet is to warn. Don't toy with this God. Don't, this God that you're rebelling against, this Christ that you're drifting from, don't toy with him. A trumpet is for the purpose of warning. And again, those seven trumpets culminate in a final judgment. Are there two final judgments? No. They're, they're, we're cycling around looking at the same thing over and over. So that gets us to chapter 10. Then in chapters 12 through 13, before we get to the seven bold judgment, what does God do? He pulls back the curtain, if you will, he says, before we go any further, let's talk about the root cause of why things are the way they are in the world and in the church. I've exposed the persecution. I've exposed the corruption, the idolatry, the false teaching, the drift away from Jesus. Now let's talk about why that's happening. And in chapters 12 and 13, God pulls back the curtain to unveil, again, the root cause of why things are the way they are. And he exposes a character in the form of a dragon, a great dragon. And he identifies for us there in chapter 12 who the dragon is, Satan. So we talked this morning, right, kids, in the Garden of Eden, what was the animal wrapped around the tree? You remember? It was a snake, a serpent. And who do we say that snake was? It was Satan. Well, here in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, the last, same snake, same serpent, he's just grown to maturity. He's a dragon now. But this dragon is behind the scenes of everything and why the world is in rebellion to him. Chapter 12 exposes a dragon, and then in chapter 13, the dragon has brought together two great allies to help him. The dragon hates Christ, hates the Messiah, wants to destroy. Remember that picture in chapter 12 of the dragon mouth wide open at the womb of the pregnant woman, ready to devour the child when it came forward? Who was the child? It was Christ. But what happened? That child was whisked away, was protected. It was Christ. He could not kill Christ. And so now the dragon turns his attention to Christ's church. He hates Christ. He wants affections turned away from Christ. Just don't love Christ. I'll give you other idols. I'll give you other kings. I'll give you other, other rulers. Just not Christ. And he, he draws in the help of two great allies. Chapter 13 tells us a beast from the land and a beast from the sea. The beast from the sea, again, using Old Testament imagery, is political influence. I'll make politics your God, safety in politics. We look to the state, we look to laws to fix our problems. We don't need Christ. And then the, the other beast, the beast from the land, do you remember what it said in chapter 13? Had the appearance of what? A lamb. Counterfeit Christianity. Who's the lamb in the book of Revelation? It's Jesus. 
What's happening in those seven churches? They're being turned away from Christ because of false teaching that's come in, a counterfeit Christianity. It's not throwing Jesus out. Satan's far too solo for that. It's just combining to the work of Christ, works, Christ plus other things that causes us to, to drift away from Christ as the all-sufficient one that he is. And again, chapter 12 and 13 is God pulling back the veil and saying, this is why we're drifting away from Christ. Our great enemy who hates Christ and doesn't want you following Christ and is subtly trying to turn your heart to another lover, subtly turn your heart to another king. And he may even put it using the terminology of Christ in the form of a lamb. And we see that in churches everywhere, down through church history and even in true in our day today. We'll gather together and sing the excellencies of Christ, yet hearts that are distant and far from him. And then come the bold judgments in chapter 16. And then in chapter 17 through 19, those chapters we've been looking at form one unit. We begin seeing God's judgment upon the dragon, upon his allies. Do you see? What we're looking at, we began seeing it with Babylon, who's another one of his allies. Babylon is a tool, the great prostitute, worldliness to turn our hearts away from Jesus. Another tool, another instrument that the dragon and, and counterfeit Christianity uses to turn our hearts away from Jesus. The sixth and seventh bowl judgment. What's the difference between a trumpet and a bowl? Bowl, it's done, it's over, it's poured out. God's declared victory over all his enemies. Now 17, 18, and 19 is for the good of the church. Let me just make sure, you, I want to play this out for you. I want you to see that the very enemies you're battling and you're struggling with, let me show you what Christ does to these. And there's grace and peace for you and I here because we're struggling with the dragon and his allies and worldliness and Babylon. It's out there. It's in our hearts. Jesus here is, is, is simply as a gift of the Father to him and for the good of the church, pouring out, saying, look at what Christ does to these enemies. And the first of the focus has been upon Babylon, the great prostitute. Later on in chapter 19, it will be what Christ does to the, the beast and the false prophet, those allies, and then chapter 20 will be what he does to the dragon. But do you see the flow there? He's exposing the problem. Here's the root cause of it. And then here's what he's going to do about that cause. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Here in chapter 19, we find here God's message to you and I. You, we who are in the battle against the great dragon, against Babylon, against these influences that Satan uses, the church will survive. Christ's church will survive, and the world and its in, the enemies of Christ will be in ruin. That's what he, all, everything has been exposing these things so that Christ can turn around and, for his glory, knock them all down. So why did I take the time to go back and review the whole book of Revelation? One, we need a better footing of the book of Revelation, how it serves us and grace and peace to us today, not some future generation that we don't, but us in the first century, the second century, the 10th century, the 21st century, how it serves us. And because, my goodness, what we're about to see, 
the celebration of the angelic host and the four living creatures around the throne celebrating hallelujah Jesus Christ is what God intends for you and I today is grace and peace to say, put, put it all on Christ. Put all your hope in Christ. Flee from worldliness. Flee from the enemy. Flee because look what's going on. And all who are associated with her will go down with her. Put it all on Christ. This world that looks so impressive, so intimidating, so seductive. Oh, it cons us, doesn't it? That's what we looked at the last couple of weeks of Babylon. The seductress, the great prostitute. It cons us into believing that this world is all there is, that this world is eternal, that this world is unchanging, that this world is unshakable, that this right here is here forever. But Revelation 19 brings us the solemn reality that all of human history is progressing not to some evolved world, you know, uh, world player, but all of human history is leading towards a funeral and a great wedding. And just as in the Garden of Eden where two lines of humanity, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, were created, and all of humans fall into one of those two lines, so too one line, lead, the seed of the serpent, leads to the funeral, and the seed of the woman leads to the wedding. The great question as we come to Revelation chapter 19 continues to be, am I a citizen of Babylon? Am I a citizen of this world? Or am I in, engaged to or betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I heading towards a funeral or am I heading to that eternal bliss of a wedding to Jesus Christ forever? Does this world dominate my thinking or does Jesus Christ have my heart? This is where Revelation chapter 19 takes us. Hallelujah over two things. Hallelujah, the Lord is judge and His judgment on His enemies is final. And number two, hallelujah, the Lord reigns over His marriage to His people. And God is worthy of praise and glory for each of them. Let's look at the first of these. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The Lord is judge, and his judgment on his enemies is final. Modern Christians today, we are eager and ready to join our brothers and sisters in Christ in praising God for his mercy and grace, as well we should be. We praise God for his kindness. We, we praise God for being our Savior. But when it comes to praising him for being a judge, I don't know, there's just something about it that we, we hit pause on. We hit pause for a moment. God is to be worshipped as a judge. That's what we see going on here. Who judges all of his enemies, which means he sends them to hell forever. He destroys everything forever. And there are some who consider God, such worship of God in, as a just judge, unworthy of God. There are some who would say, this kind of worship of God for his destruction of his enemies, man, that's not worthy of God. That's beneath God. I mean, God himself reveals himself to be in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And that's who God is. He's merciful, he's kind, he's gracious. That's what we praise. Salvation exposes God as being a God who's merciful and gracious. And for many people, that's their understanding of God. But that very Exodus 34 passage doesn't even end there. The very next statement, the very next thing that comes says that God is the one who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The Bible there teaches us that we cannot, we're not permitted to view God only in sentimental terms because of the reality of the awesomeness and awful judgments that the Bible reveals to us, he will execute on his enemies. God is not this grandfatherly figure who exists only to give us hugs and candy every time we come around. That's who some foresee God to be. God is the one who, those who flee to him, will be saved. But those who flee from him he will kill. He will destroy forever. And in fact, both the offer of salvation and the threat of judgment, those work together in the glory of God. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. The joy, the merciful, the salvation of God, and the judgment of God upon his enemies. Notice here as we, we investigate that a little more fully. Hallelujah, praise the Lord for his judgments first. Notice what belongs to him. John writes in verse 1, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Salvation belongs to him. This is in the context of the funeral he's talking about. Right? He's talking about his judgment upon Babylon. We'll get to it in a moment, but skip down to verse 3. Hallelujah! The smoke from her, Babylon, goes up forever. Meaning, man, God has left Babylon, again, not a geographical land, the spirit of Babylon, his enemies, worldliness that turns us away from him. As the, he's, he's destroyed it. So we're talking about a funeral here, but here the angelic hosts in the context of a funeral are, hallelujah, salvation belongs to our God. Think back to what we saw in chapter 14. The angelic host was singing about the eternal gospel. And we talked about then, we, one of the dangers in our day today is when we think about the gospel, we think only in terms of the cross. And again, I kind of cringe even when I say that because please don't hear me saying the cross, I'm saying the cross is the pinnacle of God's eternal gospel, but it's only a piece of God's eternal gospel. It's the most important piece, but it's only a piece. The eternal gospel of God goes back to eternity past. And it has implications for eternity future. And the, the eternal gospel is that our triune God has done everything that is necessary to ultimately save a soul from sin and to save it unto God forever. Everything that's necessary to save a soul to keep that soul, even while it's imperfect, and to usher it in to the presence of a holy God forever. Everything that it takes to accomplish that from start to finish is captured in God's eternal gospel. 
God the Father in eternity past purposed and planned and arranged before the foundation of the world. He arranged it. God the Son in, in the fullness of time fulfills the covenant that he had with his Father to save a people unto himself. At the cross, he comes and lives the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. He met all the requirements that were necessary to atone for our sins, that our sins might be forgiven, and that we might be reconciled to God. And then you have the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, who enables that individual to respond to the good news of what the Father and Son has done in repentance and faith. We're told throughout the New Testament, repentance and faith, they're gifts of God, they're gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this triune God before the foundation of the world is doing everything that is necessary to save a soul eternally. It's an eternal gospel. And here's the reality of that eternal gospel. The salvation of a soul always comes through judgment. All right, bear with me for just a minute. I know this is probably where your eyes begin to roll back in the back of your head. Salvation always comes through judgment. Think about Israel in, in their, their salvation, their deliverance from Exodus. God delivered them, but what had to happen for them to be saved? The Egyptians had to die. God opens up the Red Sea. He lets his people across. But guess what? Salvation isn't happening yet. Why? The Egyptians are coming right behind them. If they get across the Red Sea, there is no deliverance. They're just going to track them down in the wilderness. They get across. The Egyptians get into the Red Sea, and God brings the waters down and kills them. Salvation comes through judgment. God's judgment upon the Egyptians brought salvation to Israel. When God delivers a people, he saves them by judging their enemies. And that's what happened at the cross. Our great enemy was overcome and defeated. Satan, sin, ourselves, the world. God's wrath was poured out upon Christ. Christ rose in victory. Christ defeated Satan, the world, our sin nature. Our salvation came through God's judgment upon another in our place. And that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah, salvation belongs to our God. Why are they celebrating salvation in the context of a funeral? We are saved because God's judgment upon the world, because God's destruction upon his enemies, our enemies. There's now no more sin. There's now no more Babylon. There's now no more worldliness. We are free. Salvation. We've been delivered out of the world, out of Babylon, out of bondage, unto God. We're free. Salvation has come because of our God, because of his eternal salvation, because of his victory over all things. And it took the death of the world. It took the death of Babylon to free us from Babylon. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. You and I, this morning in our prayer meeting, we were talking about we are struggling with Babylon. We have problems, we have afflictions, we have hardships, we have difficulties, we have temptations. The world is pulling us this way. And we do everything in our power. But here, fast forward, Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God. He has defeated those things, ultimately and finally. So we praise God for his judgments. It goes back to what we saw in chapter 18, 
Last week, chapter, chapter 18, verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Why? Rejoice in God's destruction of Babylon, O church. Why? Because your salvation is accomplished through his defeat of your enemies. So at this final judgment, the return of Jesus Christ, the angelic host is, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Salvation comes from our God. Not only that glory, again, speaking to the weightiness of God, the God is bigger than we imagined. God is loftier than we could ever, the weight of his majesty is beyond our comprehension. We think about God's work in the eternal gospel from before the foundation of the world and everything that was necessary to save and preserve a soul, right? the preservation of the saints, to preserve a soul until the, the, the final end, the final marriage consummation. Only a God of infinite weight and majesty and glory could have accomplished that. Which plays into the next one. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Power. It's one thing to have a plan, right? It's one thing to have a blueprint. It's one thing to sit back and say, here's what I think we can do. I, the Father, I'm going to elect. Son, you're going to execute. Holy Spirit, you're going to do this. But you've got to have the power to do it. Our God knows no limits in power. There are no boundaries to his power. He's omnipotent in power. When he speaks, things come into existence. And when he plans an eternity past, an eternal gospel for the, his glory and for the, the, the good of his son and for the joy of his people, that God has the power to accomplish it. And here, after final judgment, the seventh bowl has been poured out. We have this vision and they are just worshiping. They are falling down before God for his salvation, for his glory, and for his power. My goodness, the God-centered gospel of Jesus Christ. He gets all the glory. The complexity of it baffles our minds. But he accomplishes what he sets out to do, and he gets all the glory. There's also a hallelujah there in verse 2. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The judgment that he poured out on Babylon is just and true. We're told that in those days when people stand before Christ, some will say, but Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? I was religious. I was a church attender. Here, his judgments are just and true, meaning he will not be swayed. It means that those who try to make argument with Christ, I hear your case. Maybe you're bringing something to my attention I didn't think of before. Maybe... That doesn't exist. To anyone who tries to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Christ has definitively said, get away from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. And it will be just and it will be true. Because he is just and true. Thirdly, we see in verse 3, a hallelujah for his destruction of Babylon. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever there's joy in heaven because all that remains of Babylon is the smoke from God's destruction of her 
And notice it's an eternal smoke. It goes on forever and ever. God here, God throughout the Bible, has promised, made covenant promises with his people to avenge the blood of his people and to take vengeance on his adversaries. And if you think back to the prayers of the saints around the throne, do you remember round about chapter 6 and 7? The martyrs, remember they cry out, How long, O Lord? We're sitting here watching. More and more of your people are dying. More and more of them are being killed. How long are you going to continue with restrained judgment? You're pouring out wrath. We're seeing the seven seals. But man, that's not what they deserve. They deserve unrestrained wrath, unrestrained judgment. How long? And you remember what, what God said? He said, not yet. There's more that need to die. Oh, they're going to get their due. But I have a purpose in each and every individual life. Their days are numbered. There's a purpose behind it. And I have more that need to die for my glory. But I promise you, I promise you, the world's rebellion of me and their acts against my people will not go unpunished. And Revelation chapter 19 is the fulfillment of that promise. And that's why around, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He was faithful to his promise. He told us, not yet, and we were starting to question, has he lost his mind? That's not the God I know who's going to let these people die. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's sovereign. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He did destroy his enemies. Just as we asked him to do, just as we wanted him to do in the fullness of time, he has done it. The eternal smoke of Babylon's destruction here wins the praise of the people around the throne. Look at verse 4. In response to the ongoing smoke of Babylon's destruction and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. This is in response to the destruction. They worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, yes, truly, verily, hallelujah. What are they celebrating there? Christ is one. This enemy, Babylon, this tool of Satan, the dragon, that is trying to pull people away from Jesus, to drift away from Jesus to another lover. You look at the church, of every, no soul goes untouched by Babylon. None of us. We're constantly battling that temptation to drift away from Christ. And it can look like, my goodness, might Babylon do it? Might it destroy the church? And here the seven angels, or the angels and the four living creatures Praise God. Christ won. The enemy didn't do what it tried to do. In verse 5, from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. What are they, what's the context of worship here? It's God's judgment. This is not beneath God. God is not unworthy of being worshipped for being a just God who destroys his enemies. Salvation comes by way of destruction, by way of judgment. And they're rejoicing in God. Oh, how in this life, the church of Jesus Christ suffers so much at the hands of the great dragon and the beast of the land and the beast of the sea, political influence and counterfeit Christianity. Like the waves on the sea, the church gets tossed to 
and fro. And Babylon's influence is great. The last several weeks we've been grappling with the the influence of Babylon upon our world and upon our soul. We look out in the world and we see injustice. We look at our own hearts, right? We've said all along, Babylon is not just out there. Babylon is in here. We still have a sin nature. Babylon is still here and we're grappling with being tempted by Babylon to worldliness, to drift away from Christ, to another lover who promises satisfaction and fulfillment and completeness that it just doesn't feel like Christ is providing to us. Her idolatry, her immorality. But we praise God. God is the one who preserves us and keeps us. We continue looking to Him. We continue driving out worldless by cultivating that new affection for God in Christ, His love for us. And chapter 19 enters in and brings grace and peace and says to us, one day this struggle you're having with Babylon will be no more. Look at the smoke. Look at verse 3. If you are in a battle right now against Babylon, right now a temptation to sin, and you're thinking it's going to kill me, it's going to destroy me, go to chapter 19, verse 3, and meditate. Look at the smoke. Your king is greater. Your king will destroy it. It may be overwhelming you, so what does that do? It drives you to the king. Look to Jesus. Find your fulfillment, your wholeness. If we use the language of Psalm 142 this morning, make Christ the best portion. The message of God to us this morning from the hallelujah over the funeral. Every time we're tempted by Babylon to idolatry or covetousness or evil or immorality. Oh, remember what you're buying into. Look at verse 3. Look at the end. The eternal smoke. Babylon will be no more. And those who are playing with Babylon when the Lord comes will suffer the same consequence. Pray that we would not live for the funeral of this world. So what do we live for? That's the second hallelujah. Hallelujah, the Lord reigns over his bride. We see that in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And then over the course of the next few verses, time's not going to allow us to go into all of it. But he talks about the wedding. He talks about the bride. He talks about the, the bridegroom and the guests. And I want us to, for the time we have left, to just look at one of those. I want us to think about the wedding. Hallelujah. To Christ the King, he reigns over his prepared bride. But in order for us to treasure and value, to profit from, if you will, this marriage supper, which again, we're familiar with that language and we probably have our own ideas of what it is, in order to profit from it biblically, there's a couple things we need to keep in mind. Number one, all of Revelation uses symbolic imagery. And it's not going to be any different here. The marriage supper of the lamb. Lambs don't get married. All right, this is probably the most duh thing I'm going to say all day, but let's say it. Lambs don't get married. So obviously there's symbolic language that's being used here that we have to be biblical with. 
Second thing, the wedding that's being pictured here and that's being thought about is not the kind of wedding you and I think of, not the kind of wedding that you've probably helped put on for your children or grandchildren, or if you don't have those yet, if you're married, it's it's not the wedding you had. John is picturing a Jewish first century wedding, which is far different from what we do today. The arrangements are different, the protocol is different, the, the festivities and the ceremonies, everything is different. And so as the angels are celebrating hallelujah to the king for getting us to the marriage, we, we, we need to understand it the way that they understood it. In most cases, marriages in that day were arranged. What about that? You young ladies, how do you feel about an arranged marriage? Meaning, you don't get to pick who you're going to marry. Your parents will pick them for you. And oftentimes, the parents would pick them based on how wealthy their family was. Amen, I hear that. Look out, Olivia. An arranged marriage. In fact, oftentimes, this was not always the case. I don't want to overplay this, but oftentimes, the marriage would be sight unseen. Meaning it was arranged by the parents, a contract was established, and then when the time come, we'll talk about it more in just a minute, when the time the husband came, sometimes that was the very first time the woman had seen, and now she's on, it's her wedding day. That was first century weddings. A bride was not chosen because of her attractiveness. A bride was not chosen because we're just so in love. Love at first sight. It didn't work that way. That's our 21st century. The bride often had nothing to say about it. But once a marriage between a man and a woman had been arranged by the parents, they entered into a period of time called a betrothal. Have you heard of this before? Betrothal? Kind of like our engagement, but vastly different. A betrothal in a Jewish wedding was was similar, but in a betrothal, when a couple was betrothed to be married, they did actually go before the authority and they would say their vows to one another. In one sense, at that moment, they were married. In another sense, they were not yet married. Muddy the waters a little bit. They were not allowed to consummate the marriage. Right? Big people, we know what we're talking about. They were not allowed to live together yet. But technically, it was almost as if they were husband and wife without those two vital pieces, the consummation and living together. So what the husband would do in the time, they've said their vows, in the time between that and then actually getting to enjoy the fullness of marriage, the husband would go back to his home, the wife would go to her home and wait, and the husband is just working, 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 trying to raise money. You know why? When he goes back to the father, he's got to pay. He's got to pay the father. There's a contract that's in place. He's got to pay the father a dowry. And once that is paid, the father is satisfied, and he gives the bride, his daughter, to the husband. And that's the picture. It's from that point on they're allowed to consummate the marriage, to enjoy the fullness of marriage. When the husband came and paid the dowry, there would be a usually a week-long, it could be as long as two-week-long celebration, kind of what we would think of as a wedding, and the pinnacle of that would be a marriage supper. Finest food, friends, everyone, it's, it's a festivity, they come together, and now the marriage is consummated. And during the marriage supper, 
the husband and wife would go off privately and consummate the marriage. Now it's official. Now it's real. That's the symbolism. That's the understanding of marriage. When we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, we've got to have in context. John is painting a picture for us of the consummation of God's eternal gospel upon a soul using the imagery of first century marriage. You see, you and I today are betrothed to Jesus, not yet married. Again, I don't want to downplay our union with Christ. All right? I'm not suggesting that. Paul says to the church at Corinth, I was jealous to betroth you to Jesus so that one day you might be married to him forever. That's the picture here. To betroth us, to connect us. What John is saying is that Jesus Christ, the Lamb, has come and has paid the Father's price, the dowry, to purchase his bride. We are in a period of betrothal. We have said our vow, if you will, to our husband. Repentance and faith. We've turned away from all of the lovers. And remember, we've said all along, repentance is person-oriented. I'm not just turning away from object sin. Sin is murder of God. It's murder of a person. I fled away from the authority of a person. The rule of a person. Repentance is I'm returning to a person. Repentance and faith, I'm giving all to him. And then will come ultimately the marriage in glory forever. The book of Revelation here in chapter 19 is telling us, as we are in this betrothal period, those who are true believers, you've truly repented and truly professed faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19, hallelujah. The husband has raised the funds. He's paid the price to the Father. And he's coming down the lane with his friends and buddies for the marriage supper, that great party. He's surrounded by tens of thousands and thousands of angels. He's coming to take us to be his bride in glory forever, to present us to the Father spotless and without sin. This wedding procession, this marriage supper, is coming. And it won't last for just a week or maybe two weeks as the marriage supper in the first century did. It will last forever and ever and ever. There's two ways to look at that. We can look at God's eternal gospel, the contract between the father and the son, very much parallel to the, to the contract between a, a wife's parents and a, a husband's parents and the contract they made to make this marriage happen, we can look at it as simply that, a contract. We can talk about it as though it's just a, a, a bland, mechanical, God did this. That's not the storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible is that God's covenant, the, the, the covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and God's covenant with his people is a love story. It's a love story. Just like in a first century wedding, Jewish wedding, God the Father elects his bride. The choice belongs to the Father. The choice is Christ's to go to the cross. The choice is the Spirit's to do the work that only he can do in the life of that believer to turn that heart to this new lover. 
It's a triune work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past. Not based on mutual attraction, right? We just talked about in the first century. A lot of times it was sight unseen. The love of the triune God for his people was not based on mutual attraction. It was, in fact, a one-sided choice. The Bible paints us as we don't love God. We don't want God. We're not attracted to Christ at all. It's a one-sided affair that the Father performs for us. God wins the affections of his bride through the preaching of the gospel. As the eternal gospel of God reveals to us, the Father in eternity past, choosing us from eternity, Christ at Calvary, paying the dowry, purchasing us, God the Father working through the Holy Spirit to woo us and bring us to, the, to, to Christ, right? An affection for a, a, a wife for her husband when she's never, it had to grow, it had to develop. And that's where we are in this betrothal period. That we're growing to love Christ. We're developing that affection for Christ. And now we're just simply waiting on him to come back to consummate the marriage, to bring us to him forever. And Revelation chapter 19 says, hallelujah. Fast forward, take a look. Your husband is coming. There's a song that we sing. We just sang it. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We live in a day today, marriage is based on so many variables. Love at first sight, which is so paper thin. It's based on just a momentary feeling. The eternal gospel is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit chose to love us unlovable, ugly, in sin, with an eternal love, and to pay all price necessary to win us to himself. That we might be wed to Jesus Christ forever. That we might treasure him forever. And this period of betrothal that we're in right now is cultivating that greater love for Christ, that greater affection, turning away from all other lovers that Babylon is trying to woo us to, focusing upon our husband, upon Christ, loving him, treasuring him above all things. These are the very things that the angels are praising for. Hallelujah. Babylon is no more. Hallelujah. The king is coming for his bride. That's us. The message of Revelation 19 is, are we ready? The letter to the seven churches exposes idolatry and immorality and all kinds of things. Are we dealing with those things? Are we seeking the Lord and turning to him?